the institutional response was uh, far more violent to my emotional stability, to how I felt about myself, to uh, how I internalized what happened than the actual assault. When I think about the pain, I don't think about the assault. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarland, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week, we're talking about an issue that has been in the press a lot Mm recently uh interestingly julie you actually had this conversation um, several months ago several months ago before some of the more recent um disclosures in the the press sexual assault that have come out in the last number of weeks including on harvey weinstein which you may have listened to our episode on that previously and now of course more recently we've heard about louis ck um but this uh, episode we're talking specifically about campus rape culture and Julie you've got a great conversation with now lawyer Brady Donahue. That's right uh, Brady was an undergraduate at the University of Windsor and then a student in the law school at the University of Windsor uh, where I first met her and got to know her. She did a lot of work when she was a student at the University of Windsor on issues around sexual assault and violence on campus, and in particular, how to break through a lot of silence about disclosing and reporting such incidents because of the often uh, very negative Uh, attitude taken by authorities on campus. So Brady is talking to me in this interview, which as you say, we did a couple of months ago and in some ways feels like almost ancient history given how much has happened so rapidly Mm -hmm. in the last couple of months. And the focus uh, of of the conversation is about what we should do about sexual assault and harassment on campuses. Hello, Brady. Hello. Hello, it's Julie calling. How are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. I'm really looking forward to this conversation uh, about your work and some of the work we've done together. Um, So I'm just going to jump straight in, okay? Sounds good. You only always jump straight in, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) I try. (laughs) So I'm going to take you back to being a student. In fact, an undergraduate student, um, not a law student, which is when I first met you. And at that time, you got drawn into working on sexual assault issues on campus because of your own experience, a very painful experience of reporting an assault, but then not being believed. Yes. So could you begin by saying a bit about how that experience affected you, which I mean, I suppose we can characterize as the end of innocence going to the authorities and not being believed and not being protected, and how that has changed your understanding of how we work to protect women from campus assaults. Sure. So, you know, I think a couple of things about that experience. Um, I remember that uh, it happened on a Friday night. I remember Mm -hmm. uh, feeling the next morning uh, this complete sense of, of loss. Uh, like both being lost and of loss. 
And I remember uh, walking to my friend's house the next day uh, that morning, and uh, she said, you know, this is Rob, and, and you should go to campus, please. And so we walked there together. And my first interaction with the campus police, I think, was indicative of what my uh, interactions would be with the institution and not being university, including the police, uh, for the next decade. Uh, you know, I for the next went decade, there, you said. The next decade, yeah. right. I went there feeling like I just needed to talk to somebody, uh, and I didn't really know what I wanted. And immediately, they started asking me all these really intrusive questions. And I thought, you know what? I'm just not here. I'm not in this moment. I can't do this. And I started to cry, and I left. Uh, and that night, I was a dawn in residence. Um, mm. A girl came into my room and said, I've been sexually assaulted behind a 7-Eleven. And uh, I spent the night with her at the sexual assault center and then with the police the next morning. Um, and So you went back to the police? But with somebody with this, else. With this girl, yes. Right. Um, two days later, the city police uh, came to me in my dorm, uh, and both of them um, said to me, look, we think that you have uh, made this up, um, this sexual assault behind the 7-Eleven, that you've directed this girl to, um, to lie to us. Um, because you went to the campus police on Saturday morning and uh, you told them that you were writing a paper on sexual assault and that you wanted some information. Uh, and I remember having to give them my professor's names and the friends who went with me to campus police to assure them that I, in fact, wasn't writing a paper. And in that moment, the officer said to me, well, then what is this all about? And I thought, why would I tell you? You are not going to help me. Um, and right. So you were think, disbelieved immediately? Yes. Or yes. suspected, let's put it that way. I think, you know, I was suspected of being this mastermind. Uh, right, so and... they constructed this story about why you were there, that you wanted um, exciting data for your paper. So you would right. go and, and make up a sexual assault, right? And I think, you know, Julie, um, the institutional response was so painful. I just remember feeling abandoned. Uh, and I remember thinking, like, so... Um, I felt so badly for this girl who had done nothing to deserve mm -hmm. not being believed. And I thought, you know, what happened to me uh, in the language of what is now my job was at the lower end of the scale. And, you know, I'm not sure how I would have negotiated that assault itself um, if it had just been about that. Um, but was, what was more painful was the institutional response. And I thought, yeah. God, this is... This is um, so disheartening. And um, how, you know, how do women access information about what to do? How, you know, you walk in there blind. You just want help. And you believe that the institution will help you. And, you know, people perceive that walk through the door as, like, wanting that person charged or wanting some sort of justice in the court system. And I can tell you that to this day that it was never my intention. Right. You know, um, right. a couple of months later, I went back to the police and I said, hey, listen, this guy continues. I'm, I work at the university. This guy continues to come to where I work. Can you just tell him to stay away from me? Right. And right. Uh, they said they would, and they never did because they didn't believe me. We assume what people want. We don't listen to what they want. The institution just assumes that, you know, I am out to... Um, get someone or to get something. And really, you know, all I was asking for was some advice, 
uh, and ultimately and some a couple support. And some support. You know, I mean, it sounds support. as if the institutional response was actually worse in some ways, and it certainly went on longer than the assault itself. It absolutely, the institutional response was uh, far more violent to my emotional stability, to how I felt about myself, to uh, how I internalized what happened than the actual assault. When I think about the pain, I don't think about the assault. I think about how I felt uh, and and also how this girl felt. So I think I just felt um, alive to the fact for the first time at 19 that I was going to have to fight for what I wanted, um, mm. for my safety, and for the safety of other people. And I think that's actually a, a common theme. A lot of women, I think, will say to you, yeah, what happened to me was awful, but I knew that it would happen again. And I, I spoke out because of that. Uh, and I, I think that is true for me, too. Um, so you know, so let me move you just to the second part of this question, sure. Brady, which is how, how this changes your assessment of what we really need to do. And, you know, we know not only, I'm afraid, from your experience, um, but from mine and hundreds of thousands of other women's experiences, that it's very difficult. It remains very difficult to report mm-hmm. sexual har- assault or harassment. Mm-hmm. And there is this entrenched idea in our culture that people are making, women are making it up. So mm-hmm. what do people really need to understand from your story are the barriers to disclosing? And, and how can we change that? I mean, can we change that even? I think women who have been assaulted or who are experiencing violence need to remember to trust themselves. They need to know that they are their biggest advocate for safety. Uh, And unfortunately, that they... they, And I, I, you know, it sucks to say this, but they have to fight for their safety. Uh, and and almost be relentless, and that's unfortunate. And I think that they also what need it means to know that some women can't do that in nothing like as easily as others because they have no power or they're marginalized in some way or particularly vulnerable. Nobody listened to me until I was a law student. Being a law student is an incredible platform <laughs> to um, to get things done. I was the same at 25 when I was yeah. in my third year of law school as I was at 19. Um, but all of a sudden, I was a, a faculty of law student, and, and my voice mattered. So I'm not uh, naive to the fact that that there are entire uh, groups of people who are going to have a much harder time entering uh, the doors of any institution, of uh, be it the police or the university, of being believed, of you know having uh, their story heard, and of, of speaking their truth. And what can we do to change it? I mean, how can we do something about the assumptions that were made when you walked in to campus police that night and all the other things that we know that happen to women when they report to authority? Can can we change that? I think that, you know, Julie, we can change that. I, I think that we have to always be hopeful in people's capacity to, um, um, to change. 
and, and that includes the institution. If you lose hope in that, uh, then, um, well, then I don't know what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> I can't lose hope. Um, and I have to admit a certain degree of personal knowledge of you on this one. It leaves me wondering how you balance hopefulness with being a little cynical and feeling a little raw. And, you know, let me go to a different example because this is another issue that I wanted to raise with you. You know, we know that difficult as it is to uh, raise a complaint in some circumstances uh, as a student against another student, um, raising a complaint against a sexual predator who is a faculty member is even harder. Uh, and so everything you just talked about sort of gets thrown into you know, even sharper relief in terms of the powerlessness of students reporting faculty behavior, in terms of the institution kind of closing ranks and disbelieving. First of all, with institutions, there's a massive power imbalance, and there needs to be some understanding of that, that there is um, disparity, especially when you're talking about uh, tenure track. Mm -hmm. Professors or any employee of the universities um, that, you know, you have an uphill battle to climb. And that's uh, also you know, particularly acute in professions and in areas where uh, there is a tendency to put a focus on somebody's reputation, to say all you've got, you know, from right. the first day of law school yeah. to the end of time is your reputation. And to then correlate that, your reputation, to being synonymous with don't be a problem, you know. Right, and, don't rock the boat. Uh, don't rock the boat because that's going to hurt your reputation. So you have all of these fears, this power imbalance, uh, this uh, don't rock the boat reputation conversation happening in your head, and and absolutely no support. And then you know institutions institutional responses are in my view focused right now on defense, uh, not offense. There's never uh, in my view in the ten years that uh, I've seen this happen, the hand is never extended to you to say all right, let's take a step. It's to say, well, have you thought about the legal ramifications of what yeah. we're going to experience yeah. from yeah. the perpetrator? Now, you know that in the, the last couple of weeks in the U.S., the battle there over policy on university campuses around sexual assault um, has sort of come back into the headlines, and the uh, the Trump education secretary, Betsy DeVos, has uh, rolled back what was previously put in place by the Obama administration mm -hmm. and the and the given reason and we read stories about this of course um, reported all the time is that mm -hmm. the policies that were put in place to try to support and at least initially create you know a climate of welcome and belief and encourage women to come forward and report assault uh, the claim is this is translated into multiple breaches of due process for people who uh, find themselves the subject of allegations. What would you say to that? First, one of the things I also heard Betsy DeVos say was, well, if uh, everything is harassment, then what is harassment? And that is such yes. a meaningless yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, position to take. 
Um, you know, One of her leading officials was actually quoted the other day as saying that 90% of reported rapes and assaults on college campuses were just basically dates gone wrong. Right. I mean, and yeah. we know that to be statistically inaccurate. We know that most of the studies say that the rate of false allegations in sexual assault cases are no greater than in any other case. And they uh, are. Let's put the figure out there for people to hear it. Less than less than 6%. Yeah, um, five is what I've read. Yeah. And uh, it really says something about what we think of women. Uh, and and it, it is this kind of masterful mastermind, you know, that we, the way that we get them back is to make allegations like this uh, <laughs> to ruin their lives. And, you know, I have a really hard time believing that anybody, you know, that, that, the, that someone's life is ruined when, for example, someone confesses to a sexual assault on an audio tape and then is elected president of the United States. I mean, yeah. let's talk about how it seems as though the abuser always wins. I think we also have a tendency to view due process, uh, at least colloquially, in conversation as, as parallel to the criminal justice system. And, you know, you often hear people say, well, you're presumed innocent. And the presumption of innocence is hugely important. There's nothing more important than the presumption of innocence in the criminal justice system because right. the state shouldn't arbitrarily be able to do anything to you. But yes. we're not talking about the criminal justice process. We're talking about a university where the equities have to be about keeping people safe and having an yes. environment where your students can flourish, be yes. that man or woman. And if that is not happening for a great section of your population at mm. your university camp, don't you care? And finally, uh, if it's dates gone bad, what are you doing to educate people on how to not do that, how to have better, you right. know, like, Where's the conversation? So just broadening this conversation finally a little bit uh, into the professional life that you inhabit now, Brady, you described to me many situations, um, many times now, where you have been as a woman lawyer talked down to, patronized, ridiculed even by male colleagues. And, you know, some of the stories you tell me... Um, Especially, I have to admit, the extreme attention to everything that you wear every single day by your male colleagues. You know, it, sometimes it feels like we're really in a time war. And, and mm -hmm. it's, it's so incredibly dispiriting to know mm -hmm. that you are being undermined in this way, even though I know mm -hmm. that you're pretty strong. So mm -hmm. what's, what do we need to change inside the legal profession and on the bench to stop this happening to women who choose to practice? One time I used the analogy that, that not dealing with sexual assault that's rampant in, in law schools um, is equivalent to being like a medical student who watches somebody bleed out in the atrium of the medical school. Uh, and um, I feel like that about lawyers. I mean, we are supposed to be the people that are vanguards of a system. Yeah. Yeah. that are protectors of a system that everybody needs to interact with in, in some capacity. And, and yet we have a culture of silence around uh, issues of, of sexual harassment, sexual assault. I have a lot of respect and admiration for what women started doing in, in Silicon Valley and, and in kind of the IT world where they, they started speaking out. I think there is safety in numbers. And yeah. I think that coming together as a community and saying there are uh, lots 
of great people in this profession. And we need to stand together and say, this isn't okay. And we won't tolerate it. You know, we can't divorce any of these questions from the fact that misogyny exists. And it is when people deny that reality, I think, that they find themselves in these positions of saying, well, not so bad. Right. Uh, right. And, yeah, I'm a young-looking female. Uh, and for a long time, that wasn't part of the legal profession. Right. Uh, and I think it is a power thing, right? I think it's it's about undermining me. The women in Silicon Valley give us a a model for what could be done in the legal profession if people were enough women and men were to take this issue seriously. And I think, you know, I have to say, Julie, uh, a lot of the people who have been um, really commented on on what I wear, what decisions I make, in fact, were other women. Uh, And to not also see that as a problem is significant. I don't know why we have to be so hard on each other all the time, um, especially when we already have such a hard job. But I think a lot of bit of internalized misogyny has a lot to do with that. You know, we're scared of being perceived as victims. No, but, you know, the thing I would love for universities and police officers and uh, anybody who is dealing with somebody who is identifying uh, a victim experience, I wish that they would recognize that there is nothing um enjoyable about that you know i don't want people to listen to this podcast and think oh she's a student uh advocate lawyer and victim yeah because i do nothing by that identification you know people feel sorry for their reactions are all the wrong ones they feel sorry for me the cathartic cathartic part is the community and the resilience i think that's what keeps me hopeful Well, let's stay hopeful, Brady. Thank you very much indeed for this conversation. And I hope it's about some further discussion. Take care now. You too. Brady's um, interview was really, in some ways, difficult to listen to, I found, Mm. the first time I I listened to it. There's so much in there that Mm. she says that's so good. And I was making some notes and I was finding that I was just literally just writing down quotes. <laughs> yeah, um, she's very eloquent. She really is. But a few things in particular uh, kind of stuck mm. out. Um, and the first thing, one of the earlier things she said was that she found the institutional response to her assault and her reporting her assault actually in the end has been and felt worse yeah. than the Actual attack assault. itself. Yeah, Which is, I mean, that's, that's horrifying. It's it's a pretty serious indictment of mm-hmm. what we do when people report um, on a university campus that they have been assaulted or harassed. And unfortunately, what Brady says is something that I've heard from many other students, that the uh, process of trying to push through an effort to have the university and we're not just picking here on the University of Windsor, this Mm-mm. is a widespread problem, to have the university take seriously their complaint uh, can be in some ways more traumatizing than the assault itself. And something that Brady talks about that is that often I hear from others as well is that there is this assumption often that uh, 
what somebody wants when they bring forward uh, a complaint and, and a description of a, of a very disturbing incident is that they want some kind of formal complaint to be laid and a punishment to happen. And of course, what we know is that for many people who come forward, they're still trying to figure out what the heck it is happened to them, mm -hmm. what they want or need to feel safe going mm -hmm. forward. And so rushing people immediately towards, are you making a formal complaint, yes or no, coupled with the doubt that is always being expressed by the person to whom it's being reported, makes this almost impossible for people to carry through with. I mean, Brady is a very determined person, uh, but I think it takes an enormous amount of strength to carry through a complaint of this kind, even when you don't know what that complaint necessarily should lead to. Mm -hmm. And I think that also will help explain why so many assaults go unreported. That's right. Um, because maybe somebody kind of does what Brady did, walks in to report it and meets a response like that and just kind of says, forget it. Right. You know. Right. And, and I think that that is, is widespread and known mm -hmm. amongst student networks. And I think that that feeling of not being listened to, I loved it when she said that nobody listened to her until she was a law <laughs> student, which yeah. also tells you something about the kind of the power hierarchies on a, on a campus. Um, and certainly she was more listened to when she was a law student and more listened to now that she's a lawyer, but there's still a problem with some of the listening mm -hmm. and still a problem with that assumption that what people want is always to process something all the way through to a formal complaint. Yeah. So another thing that Brady brought up, and this is something that you and I have talked about, and I know it has been um, something that I'm sure a lot of women have talked about over the years, but that seems to be not something that is quite out there as it needs to be, is this culture of silence in the law profession, which is particularly frustrating given that... Silence around sexual assault and sexual harassment. Yeah, yeah. 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 Given that um, the whole profession is supposed to be advocating for justice and um, standing up for victims and, you know, mm. all of this. Well, I, we we know that there is sexual harassment inside law firms and we know that there are sexual assaults, just like there are in any other industry or profession. Uh, and again, you know, this is not to pick on the legal profession, but what's come out in the last couple of months is a great example of how it doesn't really matter what industry you're mm -hmm. looking at, you're going to see this. And one of the things that I think probably makes this problem much worse inside law firms is that there are often people, and these are usually younger women, who are very dependent upon the grace and favor of older, often men in their law firm in order that they get their next job or their promotion or whatever it might be. And so we see over and over again women being willing to put up with behaviors that they would not ordinarily, one would hope, put up with because they believe that's in the long-term interests of their career. Mm -hmm. And I personally think that it's time that we started speaking out about these issues. Just as you say, Dana, this is a profession that advocates for justice and takes care of victims. And the last thing we should be doing is creating victims within our own profession. In other news, 
We continue to wait for news of the Law Society of Ontario's response to the Boncalo report on family legal services, including the highly controversial proposal to extend the work of paralegals to some family law cases. A recommendation should be forthcoming from the Society's Access to Justice Committee. Meanwhile, the Law Society of Alberta has announced a hands-off policy, leaving the matter to the Alberta Attorney General. Bev Boyden, who is a well-known Alberta paralegal and a friend of the NSRLP, has written a blog asking for action, entitled, If Not Now, Then When? Bev speaks about extending and clarifying paralegal practice in order that more people who cannot afford a lawyer's fees may be helped by a legal professional. Congratulations go out to Professor John Manwaring, who has been a valued member of our NSRLP Advisory Board since 2013. John has been awarded the Prix Bastarache Charon. This award is presented annually to the Super Francais, a celebration of the French common law program at Ottawa University, where John has been a mainstay for many decades. The prize was presented to John by Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, and he was feted by students from almost every year of his 40-year teaching career. Finally, continuing attention to the Dellen Millard criminal trial has meant renewed media interest in the work of the NSRLP. In several press interviews, Julie has been trying to move the conversation about self-representation to the challenges faced by SRLs in family and civil cases. You can listen to her interview on CBC Ottawa Morning and another on CTV Television from the links posted on the podcast webpage. In that vein, you can find more on all of these stories by visiting representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. Next week's conversation is with David Greenwood. David is a lawyer in the United Kingdom who has brought a series of cases on behalf of sex abuse claimants against the Anglican Church. And this is a fascinating conversation you're going to want to listen to. We're calling it Taking on the Church. <laughs>